Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set off for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy will go over there. We will worship you, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will ride the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is the word of God. We're going to get into this passage. Uh, I'm going to tell you it's, um, it's, a, it's a tough one. Um, at the end of Genesis chapter 21, we have Abraham, very, very large figure. Um, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, really, really large figure in the Bible. In fact, the three of the world's largest religions uh, look to Abraham as a father of their faith. So he is a super, super large figure uh, in those ancient times. He plants this tree where he is. And what that means is he's, he wants to settle down. Finally, there's going to be some peace in my life. But the next chapter, the chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 22, is the emotional spiritual climax of Abraham's life. He goes through a lot of suffering. And if scholars find this passage confusing, oftentimes disturbing, I'm positive that you read this text this morning with us as a body, and you're looking at this, and you're saying, this is pretty confusing. This is pretty disturbing. Abraham's going to sacrifice. God had Abraham sacrifice his son? If you're new or visiting today, um, we're looking at passages in the Old Testament that people find disagreeable, uh, in a sense, and yet, you really can't disregard these passages because they're in the Bible. They're there with intentionality. They're there for, for a reason. So we're going to look at these passages. We're going to mow them down one by one. What are they about? What do they point to? What do they mean? 
And this passage is, I mean, it's about suffering. Everyone here in this room, we understand what it means to suffer to some degree. And today, we're going to learn three things about it. What it looks like, what it feels like, how you find poise in it. What it looks like, what it feels like, how do you endure it? First, we're going to look at what it looks like. The first two verses is really uh, synonymous with the call of God. Verse 2 is really a microcosm of Abraham's entire life. It is a lesson there. God says, take Isaac. Isaac's the one you love. I want you to go. I want you to leave, and I want you to offer him up. I want you to sacrifice him. God says, go, leave. Chapter 12, Abram, is, his life is good and his life is stable, but says, God says, I want you to go. I want you to leave. I want you to offer up this life that you currently have. Where am I going? Just trust me. What am I doing there? Just trust me. Chapter 13, Abraham has grown a tremendous amount of wealth, and God says, I want you to sacrifice any future potential that you have. I want you to sacrifice the future, your options, any potential that you have to grow even more wealth. I want you to offer that up to me. Chapter 15, Abraham, he has no sons. God says, I want you to wait for a son. Abraham's 90 years old. He's about 90 years old. I want you to trust. I want you to offer up the life that other people have throughout his life. The world is telling him, this is how you build. This is how you grow. This is how you discover your potential. You've got to accumulate land, get lots of sons, grow your family. But Abraham is constantly surrendering what he thinks is going to increase his potential and, and his options and his power. Why? It's the call of God. The call of God. And now we're at chapter 22. Take your only son, whom you love. This is the centerpiece of Abraham's life. He waited literally all his life for this. Your only son. And I want you to offer him up to me. I want you to sacrifice your son. It's powerful. You have to understand, in ancient times, there were no 401ks back then. There were no 403bs back then. There were no pension plans back then. And so the amount of land that you had, the livestock that resides on that land, the fruit that comes from that land, and the number of sons that you have tending to that land when you're at an old age and you can't work that land anymore, the number of sons that can work, that's free labor, that becomes really what makes up your net worth. That is your retirement portfolio. And Abraham's got no sons if he gives up Isaac. He waited all his life for this. God's saying, I want you to give him up. What does that mean? The Christian life is not someone who goes to God and serves and obeys and, and lives a good life as a way of negotiating with God because then you're going to God on your terms. You're going to God for other things. A Christian is someone who builds the pattern of his life on the basis of God calling him, the call of God. He hears the call, he obeys the call of God, and he applies this call in his life over and over and over and over again. And so he goes to God for God, and he goes to God on God's terms. So for Abraham, the call of God is what made him. But rehearing the call, you see the small pattern here, verse two, go, leave, offer up. Over and over, rehearing the call, reapplying the call in your life, that's what matures you. It's not a one-time thing. Salvation is 
a one-time thing. It's an event. But salvation is also reapplying the call of God in your life over and over again. And, and that's what matures you. Over and over, it's a cycle of go, leave, wait, offer up, go, leave, wait, sacrifice, go, leave, wait, surrender. You see, over and over again, you need to know this because there are people in this room right now, you're tired of doors closing in your life. You're afraid of leaving certain things in your life. It's all you've got. You're afraid of leaving relationships in your life. You're unsure about giving up certain things in your life, things that you love. You're tired of waiting and trusting, waiting and trusting God. You need to hear that the call of God is often filled with going and leaving and surrendering, waiting and surrendering. Otherwise, you're all, if you don't understand that, you're going to be confused. Over and over, you're going to be confused. It's going to be perplexing. Your relationship with God is going to feel distant. Where am I going? Who am I? What am I doing? There are people in this room right now, they feel like everything that they love, you could be one of those people, everything you love right now is being stripped away from you. You don't want, when you're in those circumstances, you don't want to process the call of God, but that's when you need to process the call of God. You see? That's the best time to process the call of God in your life. Genesis says, this is how greatness happens. You want to be great? This is how it happens. Applying the call of God over and over in your life. For Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, to sacrifice his only son. I mean, that was his life-defining moment. It's this moment, but it's filled with suffering, filled with deep anguish. What does it look like? One, because it's personal, you usually do it alone. I mean, no one's going to be able to relate with you. You're suffering it alone. Notice here, God speaking only to Abraham. There's no mention of his wife. He's speaking only to Abraham. Abraham's the only one that's called to act. There are certain kinds of suffering in our lives. It's so draining. It's so painful. You don't even have the strength to call up another person and explain to them what you're going through, this deep anguish. And so you really bear the brunt of it alone. I mean, I'm... I implore you, it's important for you to connect with community and make sure that they're surrounding you. And yet, the brunt of it you still bear on your own. So, two, it's incredibly grueling. Life just kind of slows down. If you look at the pace of this narrative, it's a very interesting thing here. The pace of this narrative, verses 3 to 13. Verse 3, Abraham, he gets up early in the morning. He was likely up all night maybe praying, maybe just thinking, preparing, just dealing with the anguish. Notice the details from here on, very, very granular. It's very unique for uh, a piece of literature in these ancient times to be written this way. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him. He cut the wood. Verse 4, the journey took three days, three grueling days. I mean, they're just walking. There were no cars back then. They're just walking up this mountain. The same thing over and over, and they're carrying the wood, and he's got the fire and the knife, and, and he sees this place at a distance. Verse 5, he doesn't even know where he's going, and he finally gets there. He sees this place at a distance, right, and, and then what happens? Verse 5, he has this conversation with his servants. Verse 6, he takes the wood, places it on his son, and then he carries the fire and the knife. Verses 7 to 8, he has, he has a conversation with Isaac. Where is the lamb? 
Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Verse 9, he gets to this place. Abraham builds this altar, and the text then goes into detail of him prepping his son, Isaac, for the sacrifice. Verses 10 to 12, Abraham's about to sacrifice his son, and then uh, God calls out. Ancient, in ancient times, you never wrote fiction that way. That kind of genre where you have these kind of mundane uh, pieces to kind of fill in the gaps of life, uh, to give you a good imagination, to kind of give you an idea of what this person was going through, that kind of fiction where you're just imitating the pace of life, you're just imitating it, you're just mimicking it, it didn't emerge for thousands of years. Why was it here in the Bible? Why is it written? It's because Genesis isn't fiction. This passage was written this way because that's how it happened. And the details were included. Why? To get you into the experience of Abraham's agony. To get you to connect with the agony of what it's like to sacrifice something you love. Three days journey. To walk up the mountain. It's just... It's just grueling. It's this hike, step by grueling step. You're just alone in your thoughts. Your son has no idea what's going to happen. You're, he's, you're, it's just grueling. There's this dread of what you do when you finally get there. So it's the journey there. It's the, the dread of going there, and you're, you're dying inside. You ever been there? What's God doing? I mean, there are moments where it seems like just time just stops, you know, for parents, you know, when you're a kid, and I'm talking when he's like really sick, maybe the first time among many times, but when he's really, really sick for that first time, your heart, it almost feels like time stops, right? God wants Abraham in that moment, I mean, if you go through anything like that, he wants you to process his call. That call is deeply personal. He's speaking and looking at you. And so you're alone, and it's grueling. And, and Abraham, he, he's, got, he's got three days to process this, and that's what he's doing. He's walking, and he's in his thoughts, and he's just in agony, and he's kind of working this out. And, and three, that makes it just super overwhelming. The call is overwhelming. It's beyond you. I mean, you can't bear this. He's carrying the, the fire and the knife that is really going to sacrifice his son, and he's got to stand there and watch this happen and be a part of this. And, and there's nothing, he has no ability, there's no wisdom or logic or reason that can, that can um, support what Abraham is being called to do here. None of us have that kind of wisdom, that kind of foresight to be able to do this. You need to trust. You got to apply that call again in your life. Look, as detailed as this account is, I mean, there's significant details that are left out. Where is he supposed to go? God says, oh, trust me. He's not even sure where he's going. He's supposed to trust and so it's just overwhelming. Verse 2, it shows Abraham. He's overwhelmed. God, in verse 2, God says, take your son, your only son. There's this Hebrew doublet. Whenever you see um, that type of uh, uh, grammar there, the doublet, take your son, your only son. Whenever you see this in reference to somebody in the Old Testament, it, it represents emotional intensity and emotional focus, emotional content. It's as, if, it's as if God himself is looking at Abraham. He sees him in his agony. He sees him in his just dread, and he's crying. 
He's talking to Abraham, take, I want you to take your son, your only son, and he's weeping, and he's telling Abraham, I want you to offer him up to me. Does that look like a God who's just happy to you? Like he's just glad he's doing this? Like he just wants to bring trouble into your life? Is God enjoying this? I mean, we tend to say like, God's saying it's so cruel. Why would he do that? How could he do that? Does that look like a God who's enjoying the experience? Are you hurting? Moments in your life where you're sweating, maybe dying. God is right there, suffering with you. And so unless you see God suffering with you, and unless you see God ultimately suffering for you, you will never be able to go to him with your honesty when you are alone. You will never be able to process well unless you see a God that is right there with you, suffering with you, suffering for you. When life is grueling, when it's really intense in your life, when you're just, your focus is, is needed and yet you're overwhelmed and you're quaking and, and you're falling apart, God is right there. That's what it looks like for you. What does it feel like? For Abraham, it was just agony, just deep agony. Abraham is being asked to offer up the unthinkable, I mean, Isaac is really around the age of, he's not like some little child. He's around the age where he could get married in ancient times, probably somewhere between the age of 15 to his, to his 30s, most likely. And so for Abraham, we're not, we're not talking, we're talking about decades of intimacy with this child, his only child, his only son, whom he waited decades for. I mean, he poured into his only son. And by the way, it's not just about the time. I mean, if you're a parent, you know. The moment you set eyes on your child, the moment your child is born and you set eyes on him, you're cooked. You know it's over. It's, you're cooked. Your love for that child just goes so intense. To the degree that you love somebody, to the degree that you are intimate with somebody, that's the degree of your pain and your agony when you lose or you're about to lose that person. And Abraham absolutely loved Isaac. But in verse 2, he gets up early. The text doesn't mention how he feels because the author wants you to vicariously experience through your experience, through your story, he wants you to vicariously experience what Abraham is going through. And, I mean, if you've ever hurt that bad, if you ever loved that bad, and you lost, then you hurt really bad. You know. Friends, I'm not coming up here and like just kind of advertising this to you. I've lost four. We, my wife had four miscarriages. We probably lost a total of seven children in that process. It's grueling. It's painful. We don't even have to be that dramatic. I don't want to over-dramatize that. You have had experiences in your life where you've just lost big. You've seen people lose big. Where's his wife in all this? Notice, he doesn't even tell Sarah. Sarah's not even mentioned in the entire narrative. This is purely between Abraham and God. 
Verse three, he cuts the wood himself for the sacrifice. Verse 10, he takes the fire and the knife. This is what's gonna do Isaac in. He carries it himself. The wood, the knife, the fire, these are all tools for the sacrifice. You know what he's doing? He hears the call. He's applying the call over and over in his life. He's owning the call. You know what, people, what does it mean to own something? It's to demonstrate a faithfulness it's to demonstrate a faithfulness that is most likely visible. It was recorded. Verse 4, the trip takes three days. I mean, three days of anguish. He can almost feel the anguish, but he doesn't slow down. He doesn't argue, never debates. You never hear any recording here of him fighting with God. Why? Because he's still trusting. He's applying the call. He understood. What? What did he understand? Notice, God doesn't tell Abraham, I want you to murder your son. Because, I mean, this isn't a test. God's not testing Abraham. If this was just a test to see if Abraham would obey, he didn't have to climb all the way up the mountain and prepare the wood. He could have just taken out a knife and stabbed his son right there. Right? He could have done it at home. He doesn't say, kill your son. He says, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. And Abraham understood. You see, Isaac was the hope of his family. He was also the hope of his generation. God promised Abraham that he would redeem the world through his son, through his descendant. That's why he doted. It wasn't, Isaac was a special son, you see. He was special because of the weight. He was special because of the promise that God made. I mean, he was his son regardless. Your son is beautiful. I mean, let's be real. You walk through and you see some people's kids and you might say, uh, cute, but in your brain, he's not cute the way the parent thinks he's cute, right? You look at a child sometimes and you're like, right? Sometimes you do that, right? I mean, you, you just do, right? But the thing is, when it's your child, everyone else can say that. You don't care. He is beautiful. He is the most beautiful. And Abraham, so Abraham had every reason to dote on his child, right? But now to give him up, everything he owned centered around Isaac as his firstborn son and his only son, the law of primogeniture in ancient times. The firstborn is the sum of your wealth, the sum of your reputation, the sum of your status. And so he becomes the sum of your sense of worth. It's also why God demanded the firstborn. He always called for the firstborn livestock, the first fruits of the harvest, the firstborn son. Giving up your firstborn, man, regardless what happens tomorrow, whether God provides for me again or not, I'm going to trust. So you're placing your trust in God and not on some object that he has given you. You get that? To sacrifice Isaac is giving up what represented his status. He's giving it up. What represented his wealth. He's giving it up. He knows now I have no one to take care of my land. Doesn't matter how much land I have. Doesn't matter how much livestock I have. It runs raggedy when I get old. No one to take care of it. I am poor. I'm destitute. You see that? People are just going to steal and I can't do anything about it. You see that? So he's giving up his status and his wealth and his worth. 
but even more, Abraham knew that when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, he's calling back a debt. It's a great debt that no one in the generation could ever repay. And God had chosen it to be Isaac. He was calling back a debt of sin that every family, that Abraham himself, that we owe as a people. The firstborn son, the sin debt would be placed on the firstborn son. Only Isaac could pay. It's why Abraham was not asked to sacrifice his wife. You see that? He didn't say, I want you to sacrifice Sarah. Anybody will do. That's not what he said. So this was more than a test. God was saying, the world owes me a debt. The whole world owes me a debt of sin, and I'm calling it back. I want you to make good on it now. And Abraham now, he gets it. When God said, I want you to offer up your son Isaac, he's saying this is how, this is why he's the son of promise. This is how he's going to bless all the nations through me. Isaac is that son of promise. So when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham's now thinking, yes, this is how the family, this is how my generation, this is how the world is going to be redeemed. Isaac, my son, must be consumed for this sin debt to be paid back to God. And in the process, what God was doing was he was removing the one thing, the one thing that represented for Abraham the sum of his wealth and his worth apart from God. And when anything becomes more important than God in your life, the Bible says it will ruin you. And so God says, I want you to offer it up. And look at Abraham, not a fight. He knew, he understood. He was owning it. That's what it means to own it. The call of God. But to sacrifice that which you love more than God, I mean, it feels like death. That ruins you. You feel like that's going to ruin you. And God's saying that's going to heal you. You see that? The Bible calls that an idol. Well, how do you identify idols? Everyone in this room has something that if you lost it, you know that is going to be the end of me. I will, it will ruin me. It will devastate me. I will fall to the floor. I will never be able to get up again. If you're married and if you have children, maybe it's the loss of your spouse or maybe it's your child. And for Abraham, that's what it was. He was about to lose a son at his hand, but he understood. The world had a debt of sin. Somebody had to pay. Isaac is a son of promise. Isaac was being called to pay. Now, now, he gets it. Now, I know there are times when we're on the floor. We're on the floor, and you're just, I mean, figuratively, you're just writhing around. God is, we said God is right there with you and for you. It feels like he is absent. feels like he is, he is distant. Maybe you want to, just disregard him because it's easy to disregard. It's easy to distrust him, but that's when you need to trust in him more. When you're in the valley, when you can't see ahead, when you're in the darkness and you're enveloped in it, when the path ahead is unclear or unforged, that's when you need to trust him more. And Abraham does. He does trust more. Verse 5, he says, we will worship. This is what he tells the servants. We will worship and we will come back. What's he saying? He's saying, yes, I love Isaac, but I cannot let Isaac get in the way between me and my relationship with God. It has gone too far. Because then, even if I keep Isaac, I will lose God. I've lost everything. That is the ultimate ruin. 
I've lost myself. So I'm trusting, I mean, there must be a way. That's not the God that I know. There must be a way to, even as my life is falling apart, even as I'm on the floor in dread, there must be a way that God is going to make this work out somehow. Maybe God's removing this idol right now from you, and it's painful, and it's grueling in your life. And it feels like you can't live without this thing. That's the problem. It's become more important than God, and it's ruining you. Because he is the only person you can't live without. You can survive if you damage your career. You can survive if you've lost your wealth position. You can survive, I mean, God forbid, if you lost your spouse or if you lose your child. To varying degrees, it feels like you're going under the knife. It may feel like you're going to die. It may feel like death, but God is not a butcher. He is a surgeon and he is a skilled surgeon. He is wise with every cut to heal in a way that he can save. How do you endure it? How do you endure this? Verses six to eight, this is the only recorded conversation between Isaac and Abraham in the entire Bible. This is the only recorded conversation. Isaac says, Father, the fire and the wood, they're here, but where's the lamb? You need a lamb for the sacrifice. Verse two says, Abraham is going to Moriah, where that's where the temple in Jerusalem eventually is built, where the high priest sacrifices lambs, where the high priest makes sacrifices. Verse 7, Isaac says, where is this lamb? Where is the sacrifice? Abraham in verse 8, he says, God will make a way. God's going to provide. He's trusting God. Here's what he, verse 5, we will worship, we will come back. He's saying either God is a just God, and so the justice of God will win out, and Isaac is going to pay the price to fulfill the promise, or the mercy of God will win out, win out, and if God himself will then provide. Regardless, Abraham, he couldn't reconcile the justice of God and the mercy of God. He couldn't reconcile it. He couldn't bring the two together somehow, but somehow, In Abraham's mind, in his heart, if God is truly God, both had to be upheld. He's not going to disregard his mercy and uphold his justice. He's not going to disregard his justice and uphold his mercy. If God is good, if God is holy, he has to be just or else evil wins. Both had to be intimate. They both are intimately a part of God, and both of them are part of his character, the justice and the mercy, the judgment and the promise of God. And Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 famous chapter about the hall of faith, people who had demonstrated faith throughout the years. It says in verse 17 and 19, Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God would bring back Isaac from the dead. He figured there would be something. A three days journey, he figured Isaac would return somehow. Somehow God would be just and merciful. He was trusting in the character of God in the deepest depths of his darkness when he was alone and it was grueling and, and he, was, he was just overwhelmed knowing that this sin debt is going to fall on his son. In verses 10 to 12, Abraham is about to sacrifice his son And then the angel of the Lord stops him. Not an angel. It says the angel of the Lord. Anytime you see the distinction between an angel and the angel of the Lord, he's the angel of the Lord. He's referring to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. God himself stops Abraham. And instead in verse 3, God provides a ram as a substitute 
for Isaac. God provides. Verse 14, Abraham, he names that mountain, the Lord will provide. Now, you have to know, in verse 6, Abraham, he places the wood on Isaac, and Isaac carries it to this place of the sacrifice. That word wood in Hebrew, it's the word eight. It's a very, very specific word that's often used, almost always used, only in the context of judgment. I mean, there's lots of words for wood, but he uses this word. It's usually used in the context of judgment. What does that mean? Isaac carrying this wood, he's carrying the judgment. The judgment of the world is falling on him. Isaac, he's being placed on this wood, the judgment of God. So only God could stop him, and he does. This is how the judgment of God will be reconciled to the promise of God. God would provide the lamb that will be sacrificed on the wood of judgment, a substitute, and he does, and he does. Friends, we have an even greater sacrifice we have an even greater lamb. In John chapter 1, when John the Baptist first encounters Jesus Christ, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he sees Jesus, he sees the sacrifice. He says, This is the sacrifice for whom the entire weight of the world will be on him. Jesus will pay the ultimate debt of sin. Jesus himself will provide. Abraham's altar was on Moriah. That became the place of the temple. I just said that in Jerusalem. It was a place of the sacrifice. Right by Moriah, right there, right nearby was a hill called Calvary where another sacrifice will be made. Another journey up that mountain will be made for another sacrifice. And this time, the fire of God the knife of God, the blade of God will come down on the sun. Centuries later, Jesus Christ alone, he's alone the night before he goes to the cross, the night before the great sacrifice, and so he's praying all night. And there's the sense of dread that overwhelms him. He says, he says, my soul is troubled to the point, I'm overwhelmed to sorrow to the point of death. And you know what he does? He's trusting God still. And it's, he's, it's grueling. It's a, the, the text says that as he's praying, it, blood mixed in with the sweat came out. You see that? Drops of blood. He was sweating blood. It's an actual medical phenomenon. Then we talk about the grueling nature, the hours, the arrest, the mock of a trial, the mockery of a trial, the intensity of all that that's going on. The cries to crucify Jesus. Isaac, the son, Isaac, he carried the wood of judgment up the mountain, but ultimately he never became the sacrifice. But that word eights in the New Testament, translated out of the Hebrew into the Greek, means cross. Jesus Christ carried the ultimate wood of judgment, the ultimate wood of the sacrifice he, when he was on the cross. He was crucified on that cross. Isaac, he avoided the blade, he avoided the knife, the sacrifice put on the cross. Jesus Christ, he didn't just risk the father's blade. Isaiah chapter 3, 53 says what? He was pierced for our transgressions. 
In other words, he took on the full blade of the wrath of God. When Abraham's hand was about to come down, the angel of the Lord stopped him. The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, stops Abraham. Now, you got to think about this. Get your arms wrapped around this. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus looking at Abraham about to sacrifice his son to pay the sin debt that we owe. And he says, you cannot pay this debt, not in full. I'm not going to make you pay this debt. I will provide the substitute. For you, it's provisional. It's going to be a ram in the thicket. I will provide the substitute. I will become the substitute. Look at the amazing love of Jesus. Look at the grace of of God, the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus. He's looking at Abraham. He's saying, trust me, I understand. Don't do anything to Isaac. Your son, your only son, there it is, that doublet again. And he's crying at me. That's Jesus crying. He sees the cost. He sees Abraham owning it. He says, you can own it. And he's weeping with emotional intensity and focus. And he says, no, you cannot. Don't do this to your son. I will do it. I will pay. I see your relationship with God. Now you understand the father's pain when he will give up his own son. God is sharing. God himself is sharing with Abraham the agony of the father when he would sacrifice his only son. God is quaking. God is weeping ahead, looking ahead. Take your son, your only son. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And on the cross, there was a real earthquake. There was real darkness. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have, you sp- why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am quaking. This is the ultimate quaking. This is the ultimate trial. This is the ultimate suffering. This is the ultimate anguish. It is grueling. I'm overwhelmed. I'm being ripped apart physically. And now my soul is being ripped apart from the Father. It's the center of my life. Now he's forsaken me. And I am ruined. I am ruined. I am hurting. I am sweating. I am dying. I am alone. It is grueling. I am overwhelmed. And so he goes to the Father the way I told you. You need to go to the Father. And he got silence. Silence. The infinite abyss of the abandonment of God. Hell, complete separation from God. And so when he quakes, this is the ultimate quaking. When he's shaking, this is the ultimate shaking. He, this is the ultimate bleeding. This is it. He is over. It is, he is ruined. And yet, never sinned. Still obeyed. He owned it faithful to the end. Psalm 22, he was quoting Psalm 22. You know how it starts? My God, my God, why have you forsaken? He's literally worshiping on that mountain. Jesus Christ, he's sacrificing his blood and yet, and he's dying and yet he's still worshiping. And even though he died, Through that death, there is the justice of God meeting the mercy of God for us. There's the judgment of God 
with the true son of promise being satisfied and embracing on the cross. Jesus Christ would be disowned as a son so that we could be owned by the father. We could belong, we, could, we are a people belonging to God. Jesus Christ paid the cost, paid the price. Why? So that we would be ransomed. We would be redeemed. Jesus Christ lost the promise of God. Why? So that we then inherit the promise of God. Jesus Christ is the greater Isaac who would redeem the world through his brokenness and his sacrifice and his bleeding and his death. Trust in him. Trust in his word. I mean, it may seem dark, and it was dark around the cross. And people are looking at it saying, what, I mean, if he's really God, why is he up there? What good will this do? You're asking yourself, why would God, if he's really there, why would he put me through the stuff that he's putting me through? Why the storm and the rage? Why does it feel like I'm constantly going through, going under the knife? Trust in his word. That's the promise. In your suffering, in your trial, in your agony, surely God is present with you, suffering for you, because he did the ultimate suffering for you in Jesus. Every other suffering then becomes a mini suffering, no matter how grand it is, because he's performing surgery in your life on one hand, recognizing and wanting you to see that he is present there for you, working in you, and providing for you through it. You may not see it because it's dark. You're in the valley. You're quaking and shaking, and the world around you is just tumbling down. But when you look at the ultimate sacrifice of the ultimate son, who is Jesus, Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul, who's been through it all, he says this. He says, if, I'm just paraphrasing. If God gave you his son, surely he'll give you everything you need. There is the measure of your worth. Don't look elsewhere. There it is. That's going to give you poise in your suffering. That's going to give you courage. It's going to give you endurance to walk that journey. It's going to give you hope, faith in your own suffering. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. If he said it, better believe it. Trust it. Let's pray.